So anyways, with that said, let's dive back in to Isaiah chapter 41. And uh, this is really a continuation of what Pastor John was teaching on. Uh, so there's probably going to be a little bit of overlap about God encouraging his people or comforting his people. But as I was preparing the message, I was like, well, some of this stuff was already said, but we could always be encouraged again, right? It's, we always need, and it's a little bit what's in this, the message, what it's about being reminded, even as John prayed earlier today, if you caught that, so many times we forget about our God and what he can do and get distracted by so many different things in this world. Um, and so I think it's appropriate that uh, chapter 41 is a continuation of Isaiah's message to Israel about uh, what's coming and how to go through it. And that's really what we're going to talk about this morning. And as I was thinking about that and thinking about you and me and asking myself, what brings us hope and assurance on a daily basis in our own lives as we walk this life? And I want you to think about that. What do, what do you hope for throughout the day? And what assures you in life on a daily basis? And do you keep your eyes again, being distracted, are your eyes focused on what's happening in the world uh, and the world around you? And that kind of either increases your assurance or, you know, deflates it, kind of gives you your hope or causes you to lose hope because all that's going on in the world. Or do you keep your eyes, and this is the challenge for all of us, on what God has already said about the world around us and about what is going on? And that's where we find our hope and our assurance. And really, that's the drum, the message that Isaiah has been beating throughout the book of Isaiah is to trust God. Again, don't let all the things that's going on, don't let the things that are coming, the things that have happened in the past, distract you from focusing and trusting on the Lord. And let's be honest, it's easy when things are going well, for the most part, right, to say, uh, you know, the Lord's great. Trust in the Lord. The Lord's blessing me. That's easy. But what about when the hard times come? Do you continue to put your hope and trust in the Lord when things are not going so well? Are you sad and you begin to question the Lord's goodness? Do you begin to question the Lord's love for you? Uh, I started reading a book on the Knights Templars. Uh, so back in like... 600s and they were it was talking about when they lost Jerusalem to the to the Islamic forces and their view was that God is judging us and that's why we lost Jerusalem it wasn't just because of a bunch of other reasons no because we've sinned against God and God allows the Islamic forces to come in and take our land from us and now we're suffering some of us think like that we don't we when th something bad happens oh, I'm being judged by God I didn't read my Bible this morning. I skipped church for a few weeks. But that's not how God operates. Those things can affect us. Don't let me, I don't want to say it doesn't, but we can't always blame God, you know, for every little thing that goes wrong or look at it as God's punishing us. That's not the case. So is your spiritual life, again, determined by what's going on in the world? When things are going great, I'm close to God. When things are going bad, I kind of withdraw from God. Maybe you have that tendency in your own life. Well, let me ask you this. What if the Lord gave you a window into the future of your life? 
or even showed you what's going to happen in the future of your life, or what's coming into your life. Uh, what if the Lord said, you know what, you know, let's say Robert, I'll use myself, Robert, you know what, this year you're going to lose your job. How would that affect me? Would I stop trusting the Lord? Or what if he told one of us, hey, you know what, you're going to have to, you will lose your job, but you're going to have to take a temporary job that you're not really going to like. Would that affect your relationship with God? Or what if he says, guess what, you're going to be afflicted with the illness this year. How does that affect us in our relationship with God? All of a sudden, like, oh, the Lord afflicted me with this illness, and I'm going to suffer temporarily for the rest of my life. And is that because I did something wrong? The Lord doesn't love me. Or what if he told you, guess what, somebody that you love, somebody that is close to you is going to die this year. What if the Lord gave you insight into that? Would you think, oh, the Lord doesn't love me? And that's why these things happen. And even if the Lord showed you these things, you know what his message would be? Because guess what? Some of these things can happen to us and have happened to each and every one of us, right? People that we love are going to die. That's the reality of life. God's message to us, though, and we'll see this in the Isaiah as well, is that, you know what? I'm going to get you through it. I'm going to be there with you, right? Even as Dana was praying, God is with us and for us. He's, along for, he's on our side, right? He's not just along for the ride as a passive, a passive passenger. He's actively involved in the world. He's actively involved in our lives as well. And so even if he was to give you a glimpse into your life about some of the maybe tragic things that are going to happen to us, the message, the thing that we need to remember is that God is with us. And that God is going to get us through it all one way or the other. And so with that said, let's look into the text this morning. Because the Lord, in essence, again, as John mentioned last week, is going to tell Israel about a future event that is going to happen. And it's not going to be nice. As John mentioned last week, if you were here or if you weren't, I'll remind you that sometime in the future, speaking of the text here, Israel is going to go into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. And so Isaiah is reminding Israel, you know what, even though you're going into captivity, you're being taken from your land and being stripped of everything, I still love you. I'm still going to be with you. I'm going to get you through it all. And they need to be reminded of that because what happens if they lose hope? And they say, oh, God doesn't love us. Let's just give in and let's live like the Babylonians because they're in control now. The book of Daniel is about that time when they're in Babylon. You remember the three young boys or three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Those three said, we are not going to bow down to Babylon. We're not going to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar. And even if we have to go into the fire and die, we will not bow down. They trusted God even in the midst of that. And so again, here in Isaiah chapter 41 God is going to kind of hold court. He's summoning the entire world uh, to view, hey, this is what God is going to do. What is your response going to be? And so let's look at that. Let's read the first four verses here this morning. So Isaiah, speaking for God, says, Coastlands, listen to me in silence and let the people gain new strength. Let them come forward and let them, let them speak. Let us tum, come together for judgment. Who has aroused one from the east, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? 
He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them, uh, passing on in safety. But in a way, he had not been traversing with his feet. Excuse me, by a way, he had not been traversing with his feet. Who has performed it and accomplished it? Calling forth the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am he. So here God, we see, summons all people to consider what is about to happen. When he says coastlands, coastlands is a prophetic way throughout Isaiah and the prophets to talk about those lands that are far away, meaning the Gentile world. So he's calling the Gentile world to listen to what's going to happen. And by virtue of Isaiah writing this to Israel, he wants Israel to listen as well. So God is like holding court. Here is the verdict. This is what is going to happen in the future. Right? He says he's going to bring somebody from the east. And many uh, commentators believe that this is King Cyrus um, from Persia. And so this is what it's talking about, and that'll be addressed later on as we move through Isaiah. But he's bringing about an event that a king will come and destroy a bunch of lands. And this is going to happen while they're actually in Babylon. And he's saying, what will you do? I'm bringing this destruction. Right? God is bringing about this destruction. God is bringing about this judgment. He is the one in control of all events. And so if you look at verse 4, just to remind you of that, hey, this just didn't happen by accident. Again, God's in control. He says, uh, who has performed and accomplished this? Calling forth the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, am the first, <clears throat> and with the last, I am he. <clears throat> Excuse me. So these titles that God used is demonstrating to Israel that not only did I bring this about now, but I have planned it from past. Meaning the first and last he's talking about here. These are titles given to God to describe who he is. He is the one from the beginning. He's the one that created all things, who brings all things about. I am in the beginning, and I'm going to be there at the end. With the last, it says. I'm going to bring these things to completion. He's not only going to perform it, he's going to accomplish it, is what verse 4 says. And this is what he's describing to the people. So he's saying, I planned this, I'm bringing this, this army from afar to you. And he's going to destroy everything in its path. And so the question to them is, what are they going to do about it? Because this is going to happen. It's sure. How will you respond to this? And that's where we go to the next section in verses 5 through 7. We're going to see the response of those who don't trust God. So it's like, again, God giving us a glimpse into the future and telling you what's going to happen. How are you going to respond to it? And the first response are by those who don't trust the Lord. And this is what happens. This is how they respond. And you can see some uh, similarities to, the, to our world, to our response to God, and maybe even you yourself. So when tragedy is announced, what do you do? Here's what happens to those who don't trust the Lord. So um, starting in verse 5. The coastlands <clears throat> have seen and are afraid and the ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. So this news about the future 
or this news that they see, those people in the future see it happening, they tremble, they're afraid, and rightly so. And so what do they do? Verse 6, each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. <clears throat> so they don't cry out to God. They go to one another, which seems like a good thing. He says, hey, be strong. We can do this. You got this. You're powerful. You can do it. So the craftsman, verse 7, so the craftsman encourages the smelter. And he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil. Saying of the soldering, it is good. And he fastens it with the nail that it should not totter. So what is happening here? What's being described here is the people are encouraging one another to stand up and fight against this coming army, so to speak. And one of the ways that they're going to fight is by building an idol. That's what he's describing. They're building idols. They're building false gods. Instead of turning to the one true God, they turn to false gods to help them in this fight. And in the process, they're telling each other to be strong. It reminds me of our culture who lives on such platitudes as be strong. You can do this. You got this. Face the day. That's, that's essentially what they're doing. If you've been on any type of social media, you see that all the time. People encouraging one another to be strong based on who they are and what they have inside of them. And here we see it happening in the ancient times as well. It is nothing new. They are seeking help from one another. They're going to band together to fight what is happening or what God has decreed to happen. And they're going to band together to develop false gods, false religions to help them as well. <clears throat> and I like in verse 7 at the end, he says, they're going to fasten it with nails that it should not totter. Right? We're going to build our God to stand strong and he's going to fight for us. It seems silly, doesn't it? But we do it in our own culture. We develop these things that are going to protect us, that are going to insulate us from trouble and trials. And we're going to trust in them. And we're going to say, it is good, like they do here. This is the response, again, of those who trust not in the Lord, but in themselves. In contrast, now, God goes on to speak to the nation of Israel in verses 8 through 20, and that's what we're going to look at next, because this is the response of those who, should, who trust in the Lord. He's going to tell Israel, you're not like this. You don't, I don't want you to put your hope in each other or in false gods. Instead, I want you to trust me. And so this is what he says in verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendants of Abraham, my friend. He's reminding them who they are. Hey, Israel, you are my servant. Right? You've been chosen. You're Jacob's descendants. Not of that, you're descendants of Abraham, who is my friend. God has to remind them of who they are because they can so easily forget of who, the, who they are, that they are God's chosen people. Right? Don't forget that you're my chosen people. Don't run and trust other things. Trust in me. And that's what he says in verse 9. And again, he reminds them a little bit more of who they are. You, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. Again, reminding them who they are. You're my children. I've chosen you. I've protected you from afar. 
I've done many things for you already. You can continually trust in me. It's not just empty words that trust God or I, you got to have faith. You got to just believe. No, we don't just believe just because we believe because of who God is and what he has done. And that's what he's reminding Israel of right now. He says, do not fear. And this is going to be our application later on. So uh, highlight or you know, whatever you need to do for verse 10. This is important. So because of who they are, what God has made them, really, he says, do not fear. Why not? For I am your God. Or excuse me, for I am with you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. Why? For I am your God. This reminds me of Peter when he was called out into the ocean, right? What did he do? He anxiously looked around him as he was walking on the sea or the water, and he saw what he was doing, and he got scared, and he sunk. Instead of keeping his eyes on the Lord, and this is what the Lord is saying to Israel. Now, don't anxiously look about you, because I'm your God. That's for you and me today. Don't anxiously look about you about what's going on in the world, what news you have, how your body feels, what's going on with your children. Don't anxiously look about you and try to solve your own problems. For I am your God. Trust me is what he's saying here. And then he says, I will, I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous hand. God says, I'm, these aren't just words. This is who I am. I'm going to hold you. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to help you. And then he reminds them of all that he has done in the past or that he will do in the future. He says, behold, all those who are angered out you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but you will not find them. Those who you war with will be as nothing and non-existence. Right? He says, I'm going to destroy all the people who are trying to destroy you. Why? For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I have made you anew sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them and will make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them and the wind will carry them away and the storm will scatter them. But you will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. <clears throat> what God is telling them here is that this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make you this way and in the process, you're going to glorify God for it. You're not going to say, I did it. I had the strength. He says, no, you're going, to you're going to rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. Because God's children recognize it's not them that does it, but that it is God. And so they will obey God. They will worship God. And again, all this is based on what God has done for them or what he is going to do. And verses 17 through 20 depict God's righteous acts in the future. But again, they are all based on what he's already done for them in the past. I mean, we're talking about years and years of history when we get to this point, And years of years of miraculous things and provision that God has done for his people. And so he's just reminded them of who you are. 
what I have done for you and what I will do for you. Look at verse 17 through 20 now. He says, the afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none. And their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. So he's depicting Israel suffering. But because they seek after God, God is not going to forsake them. God is going to provide for them. He says, I will open the rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness, the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Again, God promising his people, even though you're going to suffer, know that I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to bring you out of it. It is all me. Just trust me. Because at the time that he's writing this, none of this has happened yet. But he's telling them, this is what is going to happen. And you guys need to trust me in it and through it and until the very end because I'm the first and the last. I'm the one that planned this. Trust me. Let's move on. So this is the response of those who trust in the Lord. And so now as we move to verse 21, God again goes back to the heathen nations to address them. And he brings accusations against those who do not trust in the Lord. Look at what he says. He says, present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. So he's speaking to those who don't trust God. So you're not going to trust me, then bring your case before me. And he has some questions for them. So he's like the prosecutor here. He says, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. Right? He wants them, hey, why don't you guys declare to me then what's going to happen if you're not going to trust me? Declare to me what's going to happen. Carry in the remainder of verse 22. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their, their outcome or announce them to us what is coming. Again, declare to us the future. Explain to us the past. Right? Let us know what's going to happen so we can really believe that you are truly gods. So it's like he's talking to their idols that these people had built and are going to save them, and God has the idol sitting in front of them, just picture the silliness of this, and say, why don't you tell me what's going to happen? Why don't you explain to me the past events of what has already happened? Going on, he says, declare the things that are, getting, or that are going to come afterwards, that we may know that you are gods. So he's like, tell me what's going to happen since you're a god. Something that's important to know is that predictive prophecies is a prophecy is one of the ways that the Lord evidences his divinity. Right? Because he can predict the future, this proves is one of the evidences that he's God. And that's why he's challenging these false gods to declare the future to show that you're God. And obviously they can't because they're idols. They were just created by the people that said they're going to trust in them. It's similar to uh, Aaron in the 
uh, book of Exodus where he makes a golden calf, right? And says, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt. That's silly. (laughs) He didn't do that. You guys just made it. This is how silly it looks. So again, God is saying, show me the future. Tell me what it means, idols. And obviously they can't talk. So let's read the rest of verse 23 here. He says, declare the things that are going to come afterwards that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. He says, intervene in in history. Do something, whether it's good or evil, so that we can know that you're real. Again, God is saying, I intervene in history. I created it. I make it happen, and I accomplish it. This is what he said at the very beginning. And these silly idols, they do nothing, and you're putting your hope and trust in them. It is foolish. And look at what he says about this. He says, behold, in verse 24, you are of no account. Speaking of idols, you don't even exist. You're nothing. And your work amounts to nothing. And he who chooses you is an abomination. He says, whoever puts their trust in you, little idol, is an abomination because they're proclaiming something unholy as holy and they're putting their trust in it. And again, I don't want you to miss that point. God is saying that, hey, because I bring something about it because I can tell you what's going to happen, I am God. So in Scripture, that's very important. That predictive prophecy demonstrates the divinity of God. Jesus himself predicts the future events, and he says, these things prove that I am God because I can predict the future. And he predicts it accurately. You remember the Old Testament in the books of the law, it says if somebody is, says they can predict the future or they claim to be a prophet and they're wrong just one time, then they're false. They are not true. So people that claim that they can predict the future today, if they're not right 100%, then they're not from God. And even critics of Christianity know this. Which is why if you were to read uh, higher critical commentaries on the book of Isaiah, they would say that Isaiah, they recognize that this is a future prophecy. And so what do critics do? They say, you know what? This part of Isaiah was actually written after they came back from the exile. Because these things happened. And they can't say they were written before it because then that would mean God was true. And God's word is true. So higher critics say, no, this was written way after Isaiah was dead and after the exile and they came back and then they put it in here. It's called Second Isaiah. Or this isn't really a book of Isaiah at all and they just put it together. Because critics know that if they acknowledge that this prophecy happened, then what God says is true. And they don't want to admit that. So they make up lavish scenarios about books in the Bible. That's probably more than you cared to know about that. But the point being is that people know that if God's word is true, then then they need to trust God, which is why people try to destroy God's word so often. So again, God holds these fake gods accountable and says, do something if you're a God. And obviously they can't. Right? They can't intervene in human history. They can't predict the future. Therefore, they're worthless. And it's worthless to trust in them the sad reality is is that even in our culture this happens as well that people trade our god for false gods and they trust in the creation rather than the creator and this is told to us perfectly and i would like us all to turn there to the book of romans chapter one 
Turn, to, turn with me to Romans chapter 1 and look at verses 18 through 23. So this is the argument that Paul is, is, is describing. This is the situation that Paul is describing to his world at the time. And I believe that this is going on right now. This is our world right now. And this explains a lot why our world is the way it is. Look at what it says. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So I believe God's wrath is being poured out now on this world because this world refuses, right? They suppress the truth of God, and we'll see a little bit more. They refuse to bow down to God, and so God allows things to happen to get their attention, or in judgment on people. This explains a lot of why our world is the way it is. So why is this happening? It says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made, so that they are without excuse. The Apostle Paul is saying everyone knows that there is such thing as a God. And if they don't, they are suppressing it. They're refusing to believe it on purpose. Again, it's going back to Isaiah. These people have been presented with the case of God, and they're refusing to believe it. Instead, they say, we're going to trust each other. We're going to devise our own religion, our own false gods, and we're going to trust that. We're going to suppress what God has told us, and we're going to trust in this. And here, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying as well. Go back to verse 21 in Romans. He says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So here, people knowing about God... You know, being familiar with the concepts of God and being heavily influenced, even in our world now, by Western Christianity, Western religions, they say, you know what, we're not going to give thanks to God. We don't believe God. And says God instead, right, God says, their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they become fools. And look what happens. And they exchanged the glory of God excuse me, and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. This is exactly what happened in Isaiah. They're not going to believe God and say we're going to create our own God and we're going to create images and we're going to worship them. This is what the Apostle Paul says is happening now at his time and it is happening in our world today. Right? They suppress the knowledge of God and instead... They worship the form of corruptible man. They worship themselves or idols. And let's, let's, let's go on because this kind of depicts what's happening in our world today. Therefore, God gave them over. Because the world does this so much, at some point, says God says, you know what? Fine. This is what you want. I'm going to give you over to indulge in all kinds of sinfulness as judgment upon yourselves. And he says, therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For exchange, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, a creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. 
Amen. So God just gives up on them. He says, you know what? That's what you want. I'm going to let you have it. You don't want to worship me? Then fine. And I hope you see that explains a lot what is going on in our world. When we think that evil is persisting, that evil is, is prevalent, that where is God? Well, maybe God has lifted his hands off of this country of ours and says, you know what? You guys don't want me in it? I'm going to let it spiral out. Because maybe eventually, and I hope this happens, we will come to our senses as a nation and realize that we forgot God, that we've pushed God out of this world. And therefore, God says, fine, you guys can do what you want to do. So anyways, that's, I think that's just a little glimpse into what's going on in our own world. It's not that God isn't here anymore. God is giving our world what we wanted, a world without him. And this is what it looks like, just the beginning of it. Let's go back to our text now. So what's the conclusion of this matter? This is where we come to verses 25 through uh, 29. So God says, I have aroused one from the north. He again talks about what he's going to do. He says, I've aroused one from the north, and he has a name. He has come from the rising of the sun. He will call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads clay. Who has declared this from the beginning that we might know, or the former times that we may say he is right? Surely there is no one who declared. Surely there was no one who proclaimed. Surely there was no one who heard these words. So now he's not talking to the idols. He's talking to the idolaters, those who are worshiping the idols. He said, who proclaimed all these things? And he's going to say, it wasn't any of you. You didn't learn this from your gods. It is I who did this. I proclaimed it. And verse 20 says, it's formerly I said to Zion, behold, here they are. And to Jerusalem, I will give a message of good news. But when I look, there is no one, and there is no counsel among them. Who, if I ask, can give an answer? So he's saying, if you guys can't tell me what's happening, and if I asked you, you wouldn't be able to tell me this. He says, behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. And so that's where Isaiah concludes God's message that you guys can't give me the answer to what is happening. You didn't make it happen. You don't know what's happening. And you can't tell me what's going to happen in the future. And again, God's saying, only I can do that. And so what was his message to Israel? Remember I said, look at verse 10. Go back to verse 10 because this is where we'll pull our application and close this morning. Because this is happening to the world, Isaiah is saying. It's happening to the righteous and the unrighteous. And so what are the righteous to do? When things go awry, we're going to do this here. Let's look at God's promise to his people. Again, in verses 8 through 10, particularly in verse 10, this is what God is calling us to do. Because remember I said Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 24, describes our times. And each and every one of us is going to go through hard times. So this is very applicable to us. What do we do? right? Since our life is not always perfect and joyful and, and only good things happen to us, what do we do when God allows bad things to happen? Or when God brings bad things that we think are bad things to happen in our lives? What are we supposed to do? Well, again, it's the same thing that he told his children to do. Number one, each and every one of us needs to remember that we are his children. Remember in the very beginning in verse 8, he said, 
You're my servant. I have chosen you. You're descendants of Abraham, my friend. Well, guess what? The church today, that is true of us today as well. Children of God, you are God's servants. God has chosen you, and you are descendants of Abraham. So many times we forget that we are God's children, right? We, we forget about God when hard times happen in our lives. All of a sudden, God goes out the door, and we're going to band together and do it our way. No, we need to remember that we are God's children, right? We've trusted in him. Therefore, he is our father, right? That doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we're sinless, but we are his. Israel wasn't perfect. Israel wasn't sinless, but they are his. They're God's chosen people, and the church is God's chosen people. We need to remember that first and foremost, no matter what news you are hit with, you are God's children. Therefore, what does he tell us in verse 10? Do not fear, because I'm with you. God say, don't be afraid of whatever is going to happen in your life, because I'm with you, meaning I'm by your side. I'm right next to you. And we need to believe that and trust him for that. And again, it's not some just some nice saying that you post on Instagram. We know he's on our side. We've read it in scripture. And maybe some of us have even experienced God being by our side. And we need to remember that. Do not fear because I'm with you. I'm, on, I'm by your side. Not only that, he says, do not fear for I am your God. What does that mean? That means he's over you. He's, you're his possession. You're his child. I protect you. Just think of your own children. You are protective of your own children, are you not? Nobody touches a mom's child without getting the wrath of mama bear, right? How much more is God? Look at us. That's my child. That's why he tells Israel, those who seek to do you harm, I'm going to banish them. And you're going to seek for them and you're not going to find them because they're going to be gone. And that is true for the church. All of our enemies, all the enemies of the church at the end of time will be gone. We will look for them and they will be no more. I know we want that to happen now. <laughs> but the promise for us is it's in the end for sure. Right? That's why uh, in Revelation it talks about who will enter heaven. And everyone else will be outside. They will be gone. You will not find them. All the enemies of the church will be finally be banished. So do not fear because God is with you. God is your God. And not only that, God says, do not fear for I will strengthen you. Right? God strengthens us with the power of his Holy Spirit to get through whatever it is we are struggling with. That means from inside of you. God is not only next to our side. God is not just our co-pilot, you know. He's over us. He's inside of us through the power of his Holy Spirit. He's always with us. That's why you don't need to fear. Fourthly, you don't need to fear because he says, I will help you. So it's not like God is just in the stands like a parent watching their son and, or daughter in, a, in an event. Go get him, son. Go get him, daughter. You can do it. No, God says, I'm going to help you do it. It's like God's running down on the field helping you do whatever it is you're trying to do. He's not just rooting you from afar. He's right there in the mix. He's all around us. 
Wherever the enemy comes, God is right there with us. He's going to help us. And he says, do not fear, for I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Meaning God's going to be under you, holding you up, lifting your... He's the lifter of my head, the psalm says. So God's not only on the side of us, he's not only over us, he's not only in us, he's not only helping us, he's holding us up. God is all-encompassing. That's why he can tell Israel, do not fear. That's why he tells each and every one of us, do not fear what is going on, no matter how scary and how bad it is. Because I'm with you, I'm over you, I'm in you, I'm strengthening you, I'm helping you, I'm upholding you. And again, these are not just words. If, you under, if you've seen Scripture and you've read Scripture, this is why it's important to get in God's Word. We see that He has done these things. This is why critics try to rip apart Scripture, because they know those things. If they're true, they have to give in to believe them. And some of us can, can testify, this is true. God, I've seen God do this. It doesn't mean God does it right away. He doesn't do it all the time because, right, some of us might feel like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We may be in the fire right now. But who was also in that fire with them? God was. He was there with them. And he's in that fire with you right now. Whatever it is, he's with you. I can't tell you if he's going to get you out of it. I can't tell you he's going to make it go away anytime soon. I can only say that he's with you. So do not fear. He's He's with you. He's your God. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to help you. And he's going to uphold you. Why would you not trust him? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for that very reason that it is true and it is accurate and it is right. And I pray this morning that if there's anybody in this room who has not yet experienced you in such a way as you being over them and for them and in them and upholding them that they would leave this morning trusting your word and not the situations around them. That they would not look anxiously about them for you, but they would know that you're their God. Again, you're helping them, you're strengthening them and you're upholding them in the midst of whatever it is they are going through. I pray that they would believe you for that. And I pray that they would continue to trust in you and cling to your promises. I also pray, Lord God, this morning for maybe somebody in this room who does not believe any of this this morning. But I know, Lord God, that they see it. They see and are your evidence of your existence and of your working in this world. And I pray that they would not suppress the truth any longer. That they would fall down before you and cry out to you and believe you, Lord God, and become your child. That is my prayer this morning, and it's in Jesus' name, amen.